My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Kelly Morrissey and Emily Philpot. Back in June, an episode of Talking Radical Radio featured Jennifer Heffler Elson talking about the Labrador Land Protectors, a mostly indigenous group in rural Labrador defending the land from the Lower Churchill Project, also known as the Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Dam Project. Today we revisit the Muskrat Falls struggle through the lens of one of the encouraging developments in the resistance, the ongoing emergence of solidarity activism happening elsewhere in the country. The Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Dam is being built by the provincial crown corporation Nalcor on the Churchill River in Labrador. It is in territory that is part of the Innu Nation's land claim, but impacts territory shared by members of the other two major indigenous groupings in the region as well, the Nunatsiavut and the Southern Inuit of Nunatukavut. The idea is to construct a massive dam, flood an area to create a reservoir, and release water from the reservoir in a controlled way to generate electricity. Objections to the project are many. Though there is a formal agreement with the Innu Nation, there are many criticisms of that agreement as not adequately fulfilling the requirement for free prior and informed consent, and the other impacted indigenous groups have not signed anything. Another major concern is that the flooding of land to create a reservoir can result in a sharp increase in a toxin called methylmercury, which can then contaminate the local food web. This is particularly troubling, given that not only is harvesting food from the land integral to local indigenous cultures, it's something that a lot of local people depend on. As well, there is significant concern that the dam might result in flooding of downstream communities, the project is billions of dollars over budget on the backs of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, and the energy that it will ultimately produce is mostly for export, while hydro rates in the province are expected to increase significantly. Local resistance to the Muskrat Falls Dam reached a high point just over a year ago, with a coordinated campaign by the three indigenous groups, some civil disobedience, a hunger strike, and regular local mobilizations, all focused in particular on concerns about methylmercury. This pushed the premier of the province, Dwight Ball, to meet with indigenous leaders and to promise measures meant to mitigate the threat from methylmercury. While this satisfied some residents, lots of others, many under the banner of the Labrador land protectors, continued to organize in opposition to the project. Over the last year, there have been demonstrations, events, and actions in the local area on almost a weekly basis, as well as arrests and various measures that seem designed to intimidate land protectors. And almost none of the measures that the province promised a year ago around mitigating methylmercury contamination have in fact been taken. Kelly Morrissey is a Nunatsiavumiak woman from Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador, which is one of the directly affected communities, and she is currently living in Ottawa, Ontario. Emily Philpot is a white settler woman from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, currently living in Toronto, though she happened to be in Happy Valley Goose Bay when we spoke. Emily has family living in the impacted area of Labrador, and her research for her master's degree in international development studies at York University is on the impact of Muskrat Falls on local residents. 
The first solidarity action in Ontario was actually back in September 2016, when Kelly helped put together a small demonstration on Parliament Hill. A group subsequently coalesced under the name Ontario Muskrat Solidarity Committee. The group has organized at least one other demonstration. Members in the Ottawa area have been meeting with federal politicians and officials, with a particular focus on the $9 billion federal loan guarantee for the Muskrat Falls project. And after a successful recent panel in Toronto, on which both Kelly and Emily spoke, public education events involving one or both of them are planned in the near future in Ottawa, London, Perth, Halifax, and more. By bringing people together in cities in Ontario and beyond, and raising public consciousness of the issue, they hope to expand the wave of solidarity and contribute to the kind of momentum that the land defenders on the ground will need in order to win. My name is Kelly Morrissey, and I'm a Nunatsiavomiuk woman from Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador, which is one of the communities most affected by the Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Project. Um, I'm currently living in Ottawa, Ontario. My involvement with the Muskrat Falls resistance is deeply personal. I have a huge family who greatly reside in the area that is going to be most impacted, including family in Rigolet, which is the community that could experience the highest spike in methylmercury. So for me, it's very personal as well. I have a background in social work. And so advocacy is kind of a thing for me. But really what happened was, you know, I'd always had my own reservations about Muskrat Falls. In fact, I had been offered a very lucrative job working for one of the subcontractors at Muskrat Falls, and I turned it down because of numerous ethical issues. That was when I was living in the Upper Lake Melville region. And like I said, I always had these ethical issues with how the land was being treated and subsequently the people. But the real hard-hitting thing was when the Harvard University study came out, which outlined how impactful the methylmercury would be on the surrounding area. And that's when I knew I had to get involved. And so that's when we staged our first demonstration, which happened on Parliament Hill in September of 2016. My name is Emily Philpott. I'm originally from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland and Labrador, which is on the island. It's not in Labrador. And I am a graduate student at York University in International Development Studies. And I kind of came into the solidarity movement because I decided to focus on the impacts that Muskrat Falls is having for local people in Labrador for my master's research. And as a part of that, I spent most of the summer in Labrador and I'm actually back here right now for a few weeks. As part of that, I got to interview local people here about how they see this project affecting themselves and the land and the water. And I also got to spend time with some of the land protectors here locally. In doing that, it really motivated me to do my part to maybe contribute to the issue and contribute to the solidarity movement because I am based in Toronto right now because that's where my school is. When I'm not here working in Labrador, I'm usually there. So that's how I got to meet Kelly and the other people who are involved with the Ontario Muskrat Solidarity work. And I should also say that I also have close family from Happy Valley Goose Bay. So the Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Project is one of the largest construction projects ongoing in North America right now. Many people haven't heard about it because it is in a very secluded place in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's in the Labrador inland part of the province. This project is happening near a cluster of communities in Upper Lake Melville in Labrador. That includes Happy Valley Goose Bay, Northwest River, Mud Lake, Rigolette, as well as Shahajit. 
These communities are, by and large, indigenous communities. And why that's important is because this hydroelectric project has a reservoir that is being flooded without being properly cleared. And so the concern, and Harvard University backs this up, is that there is going to be a huge spike in methylmercury within the reservoir area. And because these are indigenous communities and because of the culture, there are settlers and indigenous alike in this community who all harvest from the land. As is becoming more apparent in the media in Canada, food is expensive in Canada's north. And because of this, people are harvesting from the land and have for millennia. It's a part of culture as much as it is an essential part of modern day society in northern Canada that you need to harvest from the land. That's not going to be an easy decision to make in the future once this methylmercury really comes to full fruition in this ecosystem. Do they go ahead and risk their health? Do they risk all of the health effects of a methylmercury exposure and continue to do these things and to hunt and to fish and to eat these animals? Or do they not do that and try to find another way to afford the absolutely ridiculous cost of food in Canada's north? And also, how does that affect one's culture? When the project was pitched, it was meant to secure Newfoundland's energy future, to bring us up to speed and to give us all this quote-unquote green energy. And we know that hydro projects, when they are in large-scale form, are not environmentally friendly. They actually release a lot of greenhouse gases as well, and the pouring of cement and things makes them less environmentally friendly than they're often marketed as. But we've since learned that some of the energy is going to go to Newfoundland, but a lot of it is actually destined for export. So it's really tragic that you've got local people who have to deal with environmental risks related to food contamination, related to water safety, related to destruction of the land and the grief and the stress that that causes for a lot of people here and also worries about flooding and drowning. For the sake of exporting to, say, Nova Scotia or the eastern seaboard of the United States, which is where a lot of it is intended to go from our understanding as of right now, and there's several coastal communities in Labrador that run off of diesel generators, which is not great for human health and is also expensive and bad for the environment, and they're not seeing any change in their energy infrastructure as a result of this. So that's really unfortunate. And also, this project is significantly over budget. It's almost doubled from, I think, about $6 billion in budget to 12.7. And this is projected to possibly double the rate of electricity for people all across the province in both Newfoundland and Labrador. So you can only imagine the amount of financial stress that this is putting on ratepayers all across the province for this project that is meant to send energy elsewhere. And it's not like it's an option to not turn on the heat in the winter in Labrador. This is causing a lot of stress, environmental stress, financial stress for people here. And I mentioned the risk of drowning and flooding. The dam, as Kelly mentioned, is upstream from several communities. And part of the dam is built into a natural quick clay or marine clay formation known as the North Spur or the north side of the dam. There have been landslides along that river for years. And what local traditional knowledge holders know about that embankment is that it moves quickly, moves very quickly. And there's also been a master's student, an engineering student, did his thesis specifically on the North Spur and the viability of it and said that he doesn't believe that it will be able to hold back the water or that it's not reinforced properly. It could give way. And one of the world experts in marine clay actually visited Labrador a few years ago. And he also feels that this is a significant threat of it possibly giving away. So the dam could breach. That's a risk. At least people here definitely feel that it's a risk. 
And Nalcor, the Crown Energy Corporation building the dam, has told people that it's fine, that they've reinforced it. But a lot of local people here have a lot of reasons not to trust that data. And so you've got people who are very, very afraid of the potential threat of flooding. Just a few months ago in May, the small community of Mud Lake on the river, they actually did flood. People had to be evacuated overnight via helicopter. It was very, very stressful for a lot of people there, and those people still aren't back in their homes. Some people are still living on the military base here in Goose Bay, and there's been an independent report that has stated that they don't believe that the Muskrat Falls Dam was responsible for that flood. But again, a lot of local people don't really trust that information. They have their own traditional knowledge that informs how they feel about this, and that community's existed for 200 years and it's never been flooded until this year when the reservoir for the dam began to be flooded and the water levels of the river started to change. So a lot of people there and across this region of Upper Lake Melville are very, very worried about the threat of flooding. So you've got a situation here. It's pretty bad where people are worried about flooding. They're worried about the waters. They're worried about the traditional foods. They're worried about feeding their families and paying for electricity. And it's all for the sake of moving Newfoundland slightly away from burning coal and other forms of energy and for export. So it's quite unfortunate. So before we talk about the solidarity work that's happening in Ontario and elsewhere, give listeners a brief overview of the resistance that's been happening on the ground in Labrador. A lot of the media attention came to the protests against Muskrat Falls and the acts of protection against the project right around this time last year. And that was because there's a number of factors, but there's a big momentum and you had hundreds of people protesting at the gate of the worksite. Several land protectors actually went in and occupied the site this time last year. And you also had three individuals, Delilah, Jerry and Billy, who were on a hunger strike. So there were a number of things happening right around this time last year, and that's when everything kind of culminated in a meeting with the three Indigenous leaders of Labrador, as well as the Premier of the province. And at that meeting, there was a verbal agreement, more or less, that the reservoir would only be flooded for the winter, and then in the spring, it would be drained and the issue would be revisited and the threats to methylmercury will be mitigated. We will clear the reservoir. There will be progress on this. And in doing that, the Indigenous leaders were either encouraged or forcibly encouraged. No one really knows what happened in the room, but they emerged from that meeting and told everyone, this has been addressed. You can go home. Thank you all for standing with us and for your work and for your protest and for your hunger strike and everything that you've done. But this is good and it's taken care of. And then the spring came and there was no progress. The summer came, there was no progress. And Mm -hmm. around the fall, they finally formulated an independent expert advisory committee on methylmercury that committee is just coming together. So that's maybe some positive headway, but the bottom line is that we were promised this this time last year and that it was going to be solved in the spring and now it's almost a whole year later and it still hasn't been addressed. And theoretically, that macromercury is still culminating in those waters because the reservoir is still raised. So on the ground, people ever since last year have still been engaged in different forms of protection and protest whether that's performing ceremony on the river or people have been really passionate having rallies There's an Office of Labrador Affairs for the provincial government based here in Happy Valley, Goose Bay. And this summer, they held a vigil there for three or four weeks. And they were there to say, there hasn't been any dialogue with us in a number of months, and we want to know what's going on. And the provincial government's reaction to that was to close the office. I can't even list to you all the things that they've been doing. They're constantly working. I believe that there's been people at the gate at the Land Protectors Peace Camp across the work site entrance from Muskrat Falls, I would say at least every week since this time last year, if not more often, either having a fire or there with signs or, you know, approaching vehicles and giving them information. There have been motorcade protests this summer. 
There's been meetings, there's been a lot of different things and every possible angle taken to get this issue addressed. And a big part of that is also a lot of land protectors here and supporters, you know, they're writing letters to both the federal and provincial ministries of environment, of indigenous affairs, the provincial government, the premier's office, to NALCOR directly. People in St. John's, where NALCOR is based, have blockaded NALCOR's entrance a few times to try to get meetings with Stan Marshall, who's the CEO of the company. There's been a lot of action here, and I, I couldn't possibly list it all. How did the Ontario Muskrat Solidarity Committee first form? When I first became involved with the Muskrat Falls resistance, I did it totally in my own silo. I knew things were happening on the ground, and I was involved with a couple things on Facebook in order to feel like I was contributing, but I didn't feel it was enough. And so in September of 2016, I and 15 people went to Parliament Hill with signs, and we stood there for two hours to start the Make Muskrat Right campaign Ottawa. And from that, our co-organizer and wonderful human, Matthew Behrens, heard about it and got involved. And that's when we staged the second demonstration when the three hunger strikers, Jerry, Billy, and Delilah, came to Ottawa. That one was much bigger. There were 250 people who attended that one. And that was at the Human Rights Monument, just down from Parliament Hill. And it seems as though interest just keeps growing. In fact, as Emily previously stated, just a couple weeks ago, we went to Toronto, myself, Matthew, and there I met Erica and Emily. And we sat on a panel to talk about Muskrat Falls as a whole. We wanted to do some awareness raising because the issue of concern really at hand here is that these are human rights that are being violated. Nobody's hearing about it. And now we have several talks that are occurring all around Ontario. And in fact, we're going to be having a talk also in Halifax. However, we're also going to be speaking in London, Perth, Ottawa. The list continues to grow. And basically, we're trying to just get some awareness raising going on because quite often when this comes up, the general response is, I had no idea or, wow, this is wrong. So it's just important that we continue to spread the awareness and get people mobilized because once people know these things are happening, people do get motivated. People in Toronto came with Kelly and some of us went to Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Indigenous Crown Affairs. Her constituency office is based in Toronto and we visited that office and demanded a meeting and things like this. Also, myself, as well as one of the hunger strikers, Delilah Saunders, and Matthew Behrens, we have met with the Federal Minister of Natural Resources twice here in Ottawa in order to speak with the federal government and get them to speak to how they're feeling about their loan guarantee and how that's contributing to the ongoing injustices. It's been very interesting conversations. I don't want to speak too much to what they consisted of, but I will say that I do find that if not the content of them was fruitful, what we got out of it was that we're aware that the government is aware that there are things that are unjust. I do want to speak to the establishment of the Independent Advisory Committee. Uh, and here Kelly is referring to the committee focused on mitigating the threat of methylmercury contamination that Dwight Ball promised to the Indigenous leaders in Labrador at their marathon meeting over a year ago. 
it was only the day after our first meeting with the Federal Minister of Natural Resources that the first memo came out. Or it was the day before. They knew that we were meeting, and so they wanted to ensure, this was in August, that they had this advisory committee put into place. Talk to me more about solidarity. Why is solidarity at a distance important? And what does it mean to engage in it in a respectful and responsible way? I think it's very important to have solidarity movements within the context of this project, particularly because, once again, this is a very secluded place where I live. Oftentimes when I describe where I'm from, I often have to say, oh, we just got a road in the early 90s and it was a dirt road and they just paved it this past couple years. In order to get up there, it takes 30 hours of driving. So it gives people a context of just how far away this is from a big city like Ottawa. And oftentimes it can get, and I've had this reflected to me because I often have meetings with people who are protectors on the ground there via Skype or the like. And it gets very exhausting, you know, that you're constantly on the ground and constantly grinding. And perhaps there's not a, not a lot of movement one certain week. But if you see an event of solidarity happening in St. John's, if you see something happening and that people are fired up and believe in your cause in Toronto, that you have support in Ottawa, that you have people who want to meet with, you know, politicians or officials and say, you've made these promises to Indigenous people, to people in Canada, that we are going to conduct ourselves in a way that is congruent with human rights, then it gives people a boost on the ground, you know. And not only that, but it's awareness raising. Of course, I don't want my hometown, my culture, my family and my friends to be a cautionary tale for other places in Canada where this is happening. But it's important that we continue to talk about this, even though we know that there's likely already some damage done. Because ultimately, the original Harvard study that came out has been expanded on. Harvard expanded on their original study. And there are numerous other communities in Canada's north or secluded areas of Canada that are also going to be impacted by hydroelectric projects. And they're all Indigenous communities. And Mm -hmm. they're all human beings who also deserve access to food and to culture and to have the land not tampered with without proper consultation. And we need to talk about these things. And so it's very important to have solidarity outside of the home base because solidarity is support. It's saying, I believe in this message. I hear you. And although I can't be there, I can share this message and I can get other people fired up and passionate about it because it matters, because you matter, because the culture matters and the land matters. For me, that's definitely what drives me every day to participate in this. People are so appreciative here when they hear about people doing a demonstration or, you know, a university having a talk or anything like this. To hear that people so far away who've never met you, who've never experienced your culture, support you, I think people here really appreciate it. And I have to say, I met so many members of Land Protectors this summer, and I was a little bit worried coming in as an outsider and also as a researcher, which I know can make people uncomfortable, meeting them. And everyone here is so appreciative and so kind and so open to that support, which is really incredible given the amount of stress that they're under. So it's really, it's wonderful. And also, like Kelly said, you know, 
it's a matter of seclusion and it's a matter of solidarity and showing that support. And also it's a matter of where is the political power distributed in the country? In Newfoundland, in Labrador, it's in St. John's. In Canada, a lot of it's in Ottawa and Southern Ontario. So having people who are there, who know your cause, who know your issue, who can have these meetings or can have these events or can talk to people and share with others, that's where a lot of the work on the ground gets done. And I should also say that there's people all across the country from Iqaluit to Halifax to Ottawa who are working on things like working with Amnesty International and other groups about these issues, working you know, to see what avenues there are to have the UNDRIP articles that are being infringed upon, to have those addressed, you know, what are the legal options, what are the human rights options around that. There's one article in that document about Indigenous people have a right to practice their culture, um, and that's being prohibited here, both through destroying a very important sacred river and also through threat to traditional foods and hunting practices. And also they have a right to free prior and informed consent to any development on their land. So people are pursuing that, and that work is happening very much with people here, but there's also teammates from across the country that are Skyping and emailing and working on these sorts of projects together. So having that solidarity is really important. I can't express it enough how much people here really appreciate it, just based on my own experience. So for listeners in other parts of the country who want to support the work of the land protectors on the ground in Labrador, what would you suggest that they do? I think what I would suggest is if you'd like to learn more about the project, Nunatsiavut came out with the original kind of hashtag Make Muskrat Right campaign. And you can find that at makemuskratright.com. It's just got really important scientific information. It has a link to the Harvard study and also talks about the concerns, the cultural concerns and the environmental concerns of this project. There's also Facebook links. Look up Labrador Land Protectors who are on Facebook, and they have ongoing updates in reference to things that are happening on the ground. There's also support Billy Gauthier in his stand against Muskrat Falls. That's a mouthful, I know, but Billy Gauthier was one of the hunger strikers, hunger striking against this project back last fall. His page also has a lot of updates in reference to the Muskrat Falls resistance. And also, if you live in Ontario, myself and Kelly are going to be speaking at panels in Perth and Ottawa and maybe a few other places. And feel free to reach out to us and just say, hey, I'm so-and-so. Even if you feel you have nothing to offer or, you know, you don't have any expertise or anything like that, just having people reach out and say, hey, like, what can I do? Or, hey, like, I support you. Even just that is great. And if you happen to have expertise, say, with activism on this type of issue or with dealing with the legal avenues around these types of things or the political avenues around these types of things, and you want to offer some advice or some guidance or whatever, you know, feel free to reach out to Kelly or myself or the land protectors. You can message them directly on Facebook and offer that. As Kelly said, herself and some of the other people based in Ottawa have been going to and working on meetings with members of the federal government, particularly around the loan guarantee that the federal government has with the project. And right now we're mostly working on the speakers tour, a panel of us, just kind of getting the awareness and getting the conversation going. And then the actions kind of spin off from there, from the conversations and from the gathering of people. So that's our priority right now. You have been listening to my interview with Kelly Morrissey and Emily Philpott of the Ontario Muskrat Solidarity Committee. They don't have a web presence themselves, but they encourage people who are interested to check out the Labrador Land Protectors, and the Support Billy Gauthier in his Stand Against Muskrat Falls project pages on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>